guy's got a little unfinished business here he's got to take care of. Which reminds me, oh, God is good all the time. I wanted to uh, give an acknowledgement out, first of all, Christopher Hudson. He's the handsome young man back there. Oh, now he's kneeling down and hiding on me. If you don't know it, Christopher kind of coordinates and organizes uh, these boys picking up these cards. He's very uh, diligent about it, and he's kind of just taking that up on his own. And Christopher, we appreciate you doing that. But I wanted you to know something, Christopher. Were you here last week? I didn't think you were. I didn't think you were. Well, I was standing over here on, on, on this side, on the west side. And Jared was over here on the east side. And we saw all the boys start gathering over here. And we were kind of watching them. And it did cross both of our minds. Well, do we need to step in there? But I kind of waved at Jared. I said, things are going to be good. And those boys got together, Christopher, without you there. And they got it all figured out. And they got the job done. You would have been so proud of them. Uh, and I took that as a, as a wonderful example. That, you know, sometimes the guy that's in charge ain't here. And somebody's got to figure out how to get it done. And those little boys showed me that, that they figured out how to get it done and nobody had to tell them. Uh, so you've trained them well. I know they look up to you and you're a good example to them. But then for the rest of you all, just think about this. You know, if you don't fill out those cards, they don't have anything to do. So you need to fill out your attendance card. Make, make Eli happy. Uh, anyway. Uh, this is the part of the service where somebody gets up here for a few minutes and expounds on some part of scripture or some biblical concept. And then when we get done, uh, we all stand up and we sing what's called an imitation song. And anybody who feels the need to respond anyway comes forward. And I imagine we're going to do that. Keith's got a song picked out. So we're going to do that. We're going to, we're going to follow that uh, example today. But I wanted you to, for right now, just imagine that we've already stood up and sung the invitation song, and that I was the one that came forward. That I was the one that wanted to share something with this group about myself and about some things that I've been thinking about. And it's a little more complicated than what would fit on a three by five response card. So I'm gonna take the advantage uh, of sitting up here and try feebly as I might, to try to explain uh, some things that I've been thinking about for, for quite a while. Uh, and I'll go ahead, because I'll probably forget after the invitation song, I'll go ahead and let you know, uh, yes, I did uh, sign up to kind of host or, or direct the, the meeting this evening, and this will be, be your chance to respond, comment, criticize. We'll have a little intervention for Doug tonight. Uh, at 6 o'clock, so you can come back and, and uh, tell me about uh, what you think uh, I was sharing with you this morning. There is a uh, song in our books that takes its chorus directly from Scripture. My notes say it's 2 Timothy 1-2, And in the, new, in the uh, King James Version, it goes, I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. Paul's bold proclamation of faith and of trust and in what's been revealed to him and, and where he is, he is making his stand. 
his confidence in, in his life and in what's going to happen. That whole statement hinges to me on two words. I know. We don't like to be in doubt with regards to certain things, and the more important things are, the more we want to be confident uh, in our knowledge of them. Mark Twain once wrote, yes, I'm using Mark Twain. Mark Twain once wrote, it's not the things you don't know that'll get you into trouble. It's the things that you know for sure that just ain't so. Our knowledge is, is a critical part of how we make decisions uh, from day to day. I have grown very fond of a recent movie entitled The Big Short. Anybody seen The Big Short? It's a retelling of the, the collapse of the housing and mortgage industry back in 2008. You remember when all those companies and all the banks just because of the enormous housing bubble. And it's, a, it's an interesting retelling for those who aren't are economically challenged. It kind of explains how all that thing happened. Uh, so the characters in the movie are, are real characters. And uh, one, of the, one of the featured people is a man named Mark Baum. Mark was an investment guy. He had his little investment company and uh, really successful. And during the movie, there's a flashback to when Mark was in school. I'm guessing 11, 12 years old, preteen. And it shows him sitting out in the hallway at a bench. And uh, his mother has been called in to uh, have a little conference with the teacher. Uh, now, Mark was Jewish. So this was a Jewish Hebrew school, and, and it, was a, it was a class on the Torah. And the teacher was a rabbi, and he's talking to Mark's mother. And he says, you know, Mark is a very diligent student, very dedicated to his studies. And so his mom kind of gets a puzzled look on her face, and she says, well, Rabbi, what's the problem? And the rabbi looks at her and he says, well, it's the reason that Mark is such a good student. He's looking for inconsistencies in the word of God. And the mother pauses for a moment and then looks back at the rabbi and says, well, has he found any? It got me to thinking about, as I grew up, my raising, and I don't know if anybody in here can share this, but I grew up in a godly home. I grew up in a home with a mother and father who honored God, who honored God's word, and who consistently and regularly shared with me those stories and those concepts, and who took me to church every Sunday where I would go to Bible class where those stories and those concepts would be repeated to me again and again and again. And so I came to believe in what these people were telling me. These were people that loved me. These were people that had their, my best interest at heart. And so I accepted everything they told me. And as the natural progression came along, when you get to... 13, 14, 15 years old, something like that, you know, you start feeling that 
I don't know, is it pressure? Is it inclination, you know, to make that big decision? You know, to make a step, you know, go in there. And, you know, I kind of knew the program. And so I went ahead and, and followed through with that, sincerely, dedicating my life to Christ. And from then on, seems to me, at least my experience, that since then, my, my study and my, uh, my goal was to try to you know, live my life based on what this thing is telling me. How do I treat other people? How do I live my life uh, from day to day? But the underlying concept to me was the fact that I had just accepted that everything in here was true. And I don't feel that I ever really uh, took the time uh, from, from my vantage point to really challenge the validity of these words. Now let me step off here for just a minute. The way I see it, when it comes to time to make a decision on anything, I've concluded that there are, there are three things that are involved in there. First of all, information. You try to gather all the right information, the accurate information, concerning whatever this decision is you're making. And then, I believe experience plays into it. Uh, have, have I been involved in something like this before, and what, how, what was that like the last time, and maybe, maybe that'll influence my decision this time. And then thirdly, there's always advice or counsel from somebody else that maybe has been where I'm fixing to go, and I might, I might get, get their advice on what they might think. Now, at the tender age of 55 years old, I know a lot of you all remember 55, don't you? I've made quite a few decisions. I've made some really bad ones, and I've made some that were pretty, pretty good. And a lot of those decisions, even the bad ones I made, are not so much that you can't overcome them. Maybe you choose the wrong career path, or maybe you buy a car that ends up, you know, so you lose a few thousand dollars here, and you lose a few years of your life over here. In, in most cases, they're not something you can't quite overcome, even the bad decisions. But the decision we're talking about here, this is a pretty big decision. This is one that you just might not get a second chance at. The consequences, the, the results of this decision, based on what we understand in this book, stick with you forever and beyond forever. So I wonder to myself, if I exhibit that much concern when I make a decision about something as insignificant, relatively speaking, as a car purchase, that I want to do all the research and find out you know, which one's the best and get the best deal, and I might talk to my buddy about, you know, what do you, have you ever driven one of these before, such as that. If I want to give that much effort and that much time to a decision that's that really means so little in the long run. 
why wouldn't I give that same kind of uh, interest, that same kind of uh, evaluation to this? And I'm just not so sure that in my raising, in my growing up, that I really, really challenged this book in the way that I think that it should have been challenged. And let me, uh, let me tell you another thing why it gets me thinking that way. Half a world away, there is somebody just like me who was raised by parents that loved him, who had his best interests at heart, who, grow up, who grew up in a culture that wanted him to succeed and come to the right choice of life. But he's been taught a different narrative than I have. He's been given a different story than I have. It could be Hindu. It could be Islam. It could be Buddhism. I don't know. But he and his parents think that they've got the story right. And I thought, if I met that person somewhere and they started sharing with me their precepts of faith, well, I'd look at them and I'd think, well, no, 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 you're crazy. Where did you come up with that? Where did you get that from? And they, I guess, in most cases, have some kind of text that they would uh, deliver that story from. And then if I started sharing my story based on the concepts that I got from, from this text, they might look at me in the exact same way. So now, we've got to, we've got to come to some kind of a, a ground here where we can, we can listen to each other, we can talk to each other, and fairly examine. Did I look at this text with the same critical analysis that I do at that other guy who has some other faith belief? It seems to me that I really ought to do that. All right. This leads me to another thought. As I said, I'm 55 years old. I've been raised in the church since when I was in the womb. I know no other way of life. This, this is what I've done. This is what I've been doing. It would be real easy for me at this point in my life, at this stage in the journey, to say, you know, just, just go with it. Those questions you have, those concerns, things that just don't seem right, it would be, it'd be too much trouble to stop now and really give it the evaluation. You should have done that 40 years ago. But now you've got a family. Now you've got a, a spiritual family that you built up a relationship over for years and years. You want to stop and, and challenge and analyze that now? 
be a whole lot easier with my relationship with my wife, with my kids, with my mom, and with all of you to just, you know, push those under the rug. Just kind of, well, you know, that's the old, when we get to heaven, we'll figure it all out. Just kind of put that on the shelf. But I would not do that with somebody else's faith if they approached me with those ideas. I would challenge them. I would make them, quote, prove themselves before they would convert me to any of those other religions. But I feel that I have not really given that same examination to my own faith. Let me open up the Bible now and try to share with you a couple of folks that I think I have a kindred spirit with that give me some hope uh, in this journey. And you may guess that the first person I want to start with is in John chapter 20, and that's the man named Thomas. In John chapter 20, uh, Jesus has already been resurrected. He's already seen Mary in the garden. And in verse 19, it says, On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone his sins, they are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. That part is not what I want to focus on. But we have to know that that happened. So I can read the next verse. Verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. Whoa, a minute. I'd like to have a whole class or lesson just on where was Thomas? Why wasn't he there? Did he not get the group text? Hey, Thomas, we're meeting it, you know. I, I, and it's all conjecture, I understand. But I wonder, why wasn't Thomas there? We know they all scattered when Jesus was taken to the cross, other than John. They all, they fled. They were scared, and they're still scared. They got the doors locked. But Thomas is nowhere to be found. Did Thomas think, man, it's over, you know? It's, Jesus, Jesus is dead now. This, this whole thing that I thought was going to be a real deal, and, you know, I've been looking for the Messiah. We've all been looking for the Messiah. Every guy that comes down the pike, we go, maybe this is it, maybe this is it. Well, this is just another forgery. This was just another sham. And Thomas is, maybe he's gone back to building ships or tables or whatever Thomas used to do. I don't know where Thomas is. But I think there's got to be some kind of significance that Thomas was not there. Let's keep reading. Because the author, John, just kind of says, you know, matter of factly, oh, by the way, Thomas wasn't there. 
Verse 25, so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Now let's think back again. Who told Thomas that they've seen Jesus? We're talking Peter. We're talking James. We're talking John. Thomas, you don't believe me? Would we lie to you? I mean, I can see just somebody off the street, but we're to the game. You're not going to believe Peter? You're not going to believe John when they say, we've seen the risen Christ? Thomas says, guys, my bar of believability is right here. And I just, that's what I got to have. Verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Whoa. As much as I want to spend time on why wasn't Thomas there the last time, so why was Thomas now, he's, now he's here? Was it what they had told him that maybe kind of drew him back? I don't know. But for some reason, Thomas wasn't there a couple of verses ago, and now for some reason, now Thomas is here. Whole nother lesson. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, My Lord and my God. Appears to me, Thomas needed that. Thomas had to have that. And it appears to me that Jesus gave him what he needed. The other guys, well, I mean, they saw his hands too. But we all have, we all have our level of what we've got to have to be convinced of something. And that's what Thomas had to have. And Jesus didn't condemn him for it. Jesus didn't say, did not my brothers tell you I was raised? He said, that's what you got to have, Thomas. Here it is. I want you to believe. This is what you got to have. I'll give it to you. Now let's keep reading on, though. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. How many people, when Jesus walked this earth in his three year ministry, how many hundreds or thousands of people saw him heal? time and time and time again and still refused to believe. What did they say? If, if you saw a man raise up, you still wouldn't believe it. Seems to me Jesus is telling you guys 2,000 years later, if you believe in me, you know, you should think pretty highly of yourself. Because these folks these folks saw me and wouldn't believe me. I'm asking you 2,000 years later to believe in me, and you don't get all the evidence that they got. So consider yourself pretty good that, that you didn't happen to have that physical evidence that some of these people did. All right. Now let me move over to Mark chapter 9. Jesus is coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration with his 
three closest friends, Peter, James, and John. And in verse 14, it says, When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them, and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of his speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. So imagine you're one of those disciples. How are you feeling? Are you starting to have a little bit of, hmm, did that stuff wear off? We were able to heal people. Now all of a sudden, you know, did the magic go away? Was this just a momentary thing? I wonder if those guys kind of looked at each other and said, why can't we do this? What's, what's wrong? Do we not say it the right way? Do we not say it in Jesus' name? Is there something we did wrong here that this isn't working? So they brought him. I'm sorry, I skipped over Jesus. Uh, just go to verse 20. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground, rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. Now, I'm reading from the New International Version. I, I, I hate it when I hang on a word that might not be in your version. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. Jesus replies, if you can? If, if I can help you? Everything is possible. Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. And that's where me and this guy get on the same page. The stuff in this book, the, the, the God that created it, I, be, I believe. But you know, there's some stuff in this book Man, I, you know, and I don't want to just whitewash over it. I don't want to just say, well, you know, that's one of those things we're not, we're not supposed to know. I'm having a difficult time with that. <coughs> this man is saying, I believe, but I still have, I still have some gaps in my faith, so to speak, is, is the way I see it. I've got a couple areas in my faith that I, I, need, I need some help with, Jesus. Jesus ends up healing the young boy, and I'm thinking, is that what it took for that man? Did that put him over the edge, so to speak? Did that clear up any questions in his mind? He says, Help me with my unbelief. That's a sincere petition. And I think Jesus loves him, and Jesus, once again, just like with Thomas, I think he wants to meet that guy where he's at and do whatever it is he can 
you know, to, to whatever it's going to take to, to get him over that hurdle. And maybe healing his son was the one thing. Maybe this guy could understand everything about the concept of God, but he couldn't figure out, then why is my son like this? That doesn't make sense. And for this man, for this man in this case, maybe that's what it took. But we can even go to the Old Testament, for examples. Let's go to Judges chapter 6. Good old Gideon. Maybe this is why I've always had a soft spot, soft spot in my heart for Gideon. The man that's got the nerve, that's got the guts, that's got the whatever you want to call him, to challenge God not once, not twice, but three times, this man demands of God a sign. The first one where they put the food on the rock and the fire, you know, burns it up. And then you got the thing where the grass is dry and the fleece is wet, and then the next day, grass is wet and the fleece is dry. Did I get that right? Man, imagine, imagine what it must take to challenge God three times before I'm going to believe in you. God doesn't condemn him. God doesn't say, oh, ye of little faith. At least in this instance, in this context, God says, if that's what it takes. You ever wonder if Gideon would have said, just one more time. If Gideon would have gone to the well a fourth time, what would God have said then? Or if he'd have stopped at two? I admire Gideon for looking God in the face and saying, this is what I've got to have. I don't know about everybody else. God bless them that they don't need this kind of convincing, but God, this is what I've got to have. And it looks like According to the story, God sufficed him. And let's go to one last example. Genesis chapter 32. The man that wrestled with God, Jacob. He's on his way back home to see his brother Esau, and as they say on TV, last we left that scene, it wasn't real pretty. This is, this is not anticipated to be a really good homecoming, based on what he did to his brother when he left all those years ago. And he even hears from his messengers that Esau's on his way to meet you, and oh, by the way, he's got uh, 400 men with him. Well, why would he need 400 men to come meet me? So Jacob says in verse 9 of chapter 32, uh, verse 9, Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, Go back to your country and your relatives, I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Verse 11, 
Jacob speaking to God. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. Jacob's scared. Jacob's scared because his brother is fixing to give him a good old country you-know-what. And so he appeals to the only person that he knows that can protect him. And certainly God can. God has that power. God, you've, you've blessed me. Hey, appreciate everything you've done for me. Uh, but I've got this issue with Esau. And man, I need you to get me out of this. Jacob seems to have put his trust in God, doesn't he? Careful. He put his trust in God, all right. But then he also sends a herd of sheep and a herd of goats and a herd of camels and a herd of donkeys and a herd of livestock out in front to maybe butter Esau up a little bit. Made me start wondering how much trust was, was Jacob really putting in God. Well, why go to all that trouble? You know. And then that night, in verse 13, he spent the night there. Well, that's listing, of all the, that's listing of all the animals. Let me get down to verse 22. That night, Jacob got up, took his two wives across the river. I'm skipping a little bit. Verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was rinsed as he wrestled with the man. The man said, let me go for it is daybreak. Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. I don't know what your concept of struggling with God is. I don't know what the proper analysis of Jacob struggling with God that night uh, before he met his brother Esau. But I've always thought growing up that when you struggle, you struggle with sin. You, you, know, you wrestle with the devil. You wrestle with an opponent, someone who's trying to, to get the better of you. But Jacob struggled with God. And I'm here to tell you this morning that I struggle with God. I wrestle with God, and I think, I don't think he minds. I really don't think he minds. Because if this book is what it says it is, and the concepts within it, it should certainly be worthy of any challenge I can put to it. I don't think God is afraid to be challenged. I think it's good for me to be able to challenge those places that I just don't quite understand. And you may be sitting out there saying, Doug, you'll never understand it. And that's, that may be the case, but I'm not, I don't want to quit trying. And I think some of those questions I've been afraid to challenge God on. 
Maybe it'll show a lack of faith or a lack of confidence in him. Maybe, maybe I'm just afraid like that, that investment guy, I might find an inconsistency. And then what do I do with that if I find it? So, I'm just here to tell you that from my perspective, I've got some of those areas in my faith that, that I struggle with that I can't quite figure out, and I'm trying to figure those things out. And I know Hebrews says that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. So that's some hope. That's some hope. So I'm going to continue to ask some of the difficult questions, some of the uncomfortable questions. And I find that some of those most difficult questions are not the ones I find in Bible class or in here, but you find them down this hallway where all the four and five-year-olds are. When they ask you those questions that you go, oh man, I never thought of that before. That makes sense because they're looking at it from a totally objective standpoint. Why did God do that? Brody, that's a good question. I don't know why God did that. So do I just slough that off or do I try to figure that out? I'm going to start trying to figure that out more and not slough some of those things off. Folks, that's where I'm at. You may think I'm crazy, and you may have it all figured out, and God bless you if you do. But we're going to sing that song, and if anybody needs us to help you in any way, uh, we'll be glad to try. And like I say, tonight at 6 o'clock, if you want to challenge me and help me and walk through this, we'll, we'll kick that around tonight. But thank you all for listening. Let's stand and sing.